0: Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty.
1: Guilty of loving you. Mm. Hi, and welcome to episode 33 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law, and sometimes, like today, wild women on the right side of the law. Yes, we're doing another Crime Fighting Broads episode, and I'm so excited for you to hear this story. Before we get to the actual story, I want to give you some background, um, because the woman you're about to hear from, spoiler alert, her name is Kathy Kleiner, and she survived an attack by the serial killer Ted Bundy on the night of January fifteenth, 1978 in the Chi Omega house. Ted Bundy attacked five women that night and three of them survived him. Um, He killed two, two of the girls in the sorority house survived, and then he went on to attack another girl and she also survived. Um, Now I lost my train of thought because I got so worked up about Ted Bundy. (laughs) Where was I going with this? How how Kathy and I know each other. Last year, I had written an article for the website Vulture, and this article was just kind of an overview of all the pop culture about Ted Bundy that was coming out that year and this year. Anyway, the article goes up. That very night, I check my email, and there is an email in my inbox from someone named Kathy Kleiner. Now, I knew her name. Uh, I had read her story. I had read her name in Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. I had read her name in newspaper articles. And now she's in my inbox. I honestly thought that someone who didn't like me very much was trolling me at first. I was like, there's no way Kathy Kleiner, whose name I have read in books, is emailing me. This has got to be some person just trying to get my hopes up. But it was the real Kathy, and she was lovely. And we talked, and we talked, and we decided to do an article about her story. And the article about her life finally came out in January um, in Rolling Stone. So you can see it. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. But it was an absolute one of the honors of my career to get to write the story of her life. Anyway, um... She we kept in touch because we're besties. And when I mentioned that I had a podcast, she said she liked the podcast. And I was like, hey, I think my listeners would really like meeting you. Is there any way you would want to come on the podcast and tell me your story again? And of course, she said yes, because she's a delight, like I said. So here she is to tell you her story, and you're going to hear it. a lot of it in her words. I have big chunks of her talking because it's her story, and I want you to hear the way she says it. And believe me, I know her story already because I did a lot of interviews with her for the Rolling Stone article. doesn't matter. When I was interviewing her for this podcast and listening to her, I knew what she was going to say. You know, I knew where this was going, it didn't matter. I My heart was in my throat. I kid you not. I mean, my body was tense. My heart was racing. It was just... She she tells this story very well, and she she tells it like you're there, and that's what she told me she wants to do. She wants to walk you through it and remind you that this was real and, and make you feel like you're there. So I will give you a bit of a warning. I mean, this episode is about Ted Bundy in part, And so there are some violent parts and there are some graphic details. I think that's all you need to know before we dive into the story. So without further ado, we're traveling back. We're going to mostly be in the year 1978 in Tallahassee, Florida. Let's get going. One day, in early 1978, Kathy Kleiner was on the phone in her parents' kitchen, begging her sorority sisters to call her back. Her jaw was wired shut, her attacker was still on the loose, and undercover cops surrounded her house. But at that moment, the most urgent thing in her life was this phone call. This is Kathy Kleiner, said Kathy, through clenched teeth, when someone finally picked up. And I'm calling to leave a message for... This is who? The girl who'd answered the phone was a Chi Omega pledge at Florida State University, just like Kathy had been one year before. If all went well, the girl would officially join the sorority later that spring, but there was just one problem, and that problem was epitomized by Kathy with her clenched teeth and wired-shut jaw. To Kai Omega, Kathy was an inconvenient reminder that just one month ago, there'd been a serial killer in their sorority house. Young pledges might be less inclined to join Kai Omega if they heard about the oak log and the hairspray bottle and the three breaks in Kathy's jaw. And so the sorority adopted a quiet, unofficial stance, "'Nobody talk about Kathy Kleiner.'" Which was why the girl at the other end of the phone didn't even recognize her name. Before long, the name of Kathy's would-be killer, Theodore Robert Bundy, would be spreading like wildfire across the country. On January 15, 1978, Ted Bundy entered the FSU Chi Omega house and, in the space of about 15 minutes, attacked four girls, leaving two dead and two brutally injured. In the years to follow, he would become a celebrity. People would gasp over his law student background. The New York Times would call him Kennedy-esque. Hollywood's hottest A-listers would play him on the big screen. Groupies would swoon over him in the courtroom, and his face would be printed onto T-shirts. As his cult of personality boomed, his victims were reduced to a series of photographs and not much else— Twenty-plus young girls, some wondered if there were twice, three times as many, whose names would largely be forgotten. But all that would come later. In the meantime, Kathy was leaving message after message for her sorority sisters, and no one was ever calling her back. Often, her mother would come into the kitchen and find Kathy weeping on the phone. Okay, she'd say gently, let's put that away and she'd take the phone from Kathy's shaking hands and hang it up. Long before Kathy Kleiner and Ted Bundy ever crossed paths, Kathy had already experienced her fair share of hardship. She was a feisty, creative little kid, but there was one thing that loomed over her childhood, the hospital.
2: When I was 13, I was diagnosed with systemic lupus, which is a form of lupus that actually um, attacks your organs as well as um, your um, your bloodstream. I was diagnosed when I was in, um, I believe, June of my sixth grade of school. I was in the hospital for three months during that time. I was um, not told, but my parents told that my lupus was so aggressive that they probably um, would give me a year to live. And of course, I didn't know that, so um, I was just getting better as far as I knew. My parents were offered a, um, a chance to give me experimental cocktail for chemo, which I took and lost all my hair. And at this point was the beginning of my seventh grade in the fall, and I was homeschooled and homebound for that whole year. I had my little dog, and I would get so bored sometimes. I remember I would uh, dial zero and talk with the operator and sometimes they talk to me and sometimes they'd be too busy but that was kind of an outlet I had so and they were mostly very kind to me I did um, go one time out my parents let me go to church because I was bothering so much so one Sunday I went to church and less than two weeks later I came home and I had shingles so on, on top of everything else no hair shingles and homebound. It was a very uncomfortable year for me. So I went to high school, my freshman year in high school. I joined theater. Theater was a great release for me. I made great friends. And I found when I was in theater, I could act and I could play and be anyone I wanted to be. And I didn't have to be that sick kid that was home on seventh grade. That was behind me now.
1: Theater was the perfect outlet for a kid who'd spent so much time in hospital beds or inside, unable to mingle with the other children. Finally, Kathy felt like she could be her bright, true self on stage, and the friends she made in that theater group would last her entire life. She and her good friend Nora had a bit where Nora was the ventriloquist and Kathy was the ventriloquist's dummy, a very sassy, very argumentative dummy, mind you. She was a tiny kid, just under five feet tall, and in one Christmas play, she played the star at the top of the tree. Kathy graduated from high school, and in the fall of 1976, she enrolled at Florida State University in Tallahassee. Since her parents were in Miami, she figured that Tallahassee was about as far as she could get from home while still getting that in-state tuition. That fall, she visited a number of different sorority houses, trying to decide where to pledge, and she ended up matching with her first choice, a sorority house that was already full of many of her friends from high school. Kathy loved it.
2: I was uh, matched up with Chi Omega, and wow, it was great. Um, You know, to be accepted, and everyone was happy, and everyone was so eager to teach us everything as a pledge. I believe there was four pledges in my group of all the girls that went to uh, went to Chi Omega that time. The sisters were great. The sorority house was beautiful. It had a grand entrance with beautiful wooden staircase. And it had a formal library and a formal living room and a kitchen, you know, the dining room. It was just a beautiful house to be in.
1: When she was a freshman, Kathy lived in an all-girls dormitory. Her parents had wanted her to live there. But as the year passed, they became convinced that even an all-girls dorm wasn't safe enough for her. Kathy's bout with lupus meant that her mom tended to worry about her a lot. Her parents felt that anyone could come into that dorm at any time. They wanted her somewhere a bit more supervised. The Chi Omega house had a house mother and combination locks on the doors, and so they encouraged her to move into the sorority for her sophomore year. She'd be safer there, they thought. So, in the fall of 1977, Kathy and her new Chi Omega roommate, a girl named Karen Chandler, moved in together. They loved their new room and took pains to decorate it. They couldn't have known that every little detail of how they decorated that room would become incredibly significant later.
2: Our room, like I said, was a basic dormitory size room. When you walk through our, our door to the bedroom, it was a long, narrow room. If you look on each side of the walls, there were our dressers. Everything mirrored each other. So our dressers was on um, the line of the wall in the beginning. And then you walked down and there was our little desks. You walked a couple feet more and we each had a twin bed. Mine was on the left and Karen's was on the right. Between our beds, we had a small, these call it footlocker and it was just a small lock you keep your blankets on in and we kept plants on it and my glasses and books that was between our beds with about three feet from the trunk to each bed on each side when you looked straight back to our room the back wall was actually a whole open bank of windows it was beautiful let so much sunshine we left our curtains open because we had hanging plants hanging on the curtain rods. We never closed the curtains because we didn't want to take all the plants down. So we changed in the bathroom and um, it was just nice to have the light all day.
1: Now that Kathy was all settled into her new room, she and her mom decided it was time to go shopping for that age-old college dorm room staple, the perfect matching bed set.
2: We went shopping, Mama and I, and it took forever for me to find a bedspread and a color theme I wanted to go with. I finally found my favorite bedspread, which was white and had trees and yellow leaves on it, and it was it was beautiful. It was just great, and um, had sheets and I was happy to go back to Florida State and dress up my room and you know, just getting ready for the next semester to begin.
1: And now let's take a quick break to hear from this show's sponsors. Our first sponsor is the amazing The Great Courses Plus. Picture this with me. You're at trivia. The question is something about women warriors throughout history. Everyone at your table has a blank look on your face. But you, you know the answer. And you win it for your team. Okay, this hypothetical scenario will only be possible if you check out The Great Courses Plus, which is a streaming service full of courses from top-level professors and experts about anything from women warriors in history to true crime to things like photography and cooking. I have been listening to Forensic History, Crimes, Frauds, and Scandals. This is a course that goes deep into famous cases that we think we already know everything about. Jack the Ripper, Lizzie Borden, the Menendez Brothers, the Tylenol Murders. So if you'd like to check out The Great Courses, you can get an entire month free by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com backslash broads. That's thegreatcoursesplus, P-L-U-S dot com slash broads for a free month of learning and expertise and just becoming generally more amazing at trivia our second sponsor is the new podcast nevertheless she existed which is a fabulous look into women's history that they capital t they don't want you to know about here i'm going to play a little clip for you
0: Hello, cruel world. I am Molly Gaby. And I am Kylie Holloway. And we're the hosts of Nevertheless, She Existed podcast. We're starting a new podcast, and we want to
1: tell you a little bit about it.
0: So what are we doing here with this new podcast? Oh,
1: I don't know, Kylie. Just righting the wrongs of hundreds of years of forgotten women's history, that's
0: all. Kind of a lofty goal for a podcast, yes. But remember, Rome wasn't built in a year. Mm -hmm. But I bet it could have been if women were in charge of building the damn thing. Just saying.
1: And our third sponsor is The Awesome Care Of, which is a subscription service that delivers vitamins and supplements right to your door. And not just any vitamin or any supplement, customized ones that actually fit with what you need. Maybe you don't need more calcium, maybe your bones are strong enough you creep, maybe what you really need is more vitamin D. You go online and you take their easy, fun quiz that is backed by science, not by cult leader propaganda and it'll ask you about your health goals. So I took it and I put that I want to sleep better and I never want to stress again. I want to have perfect skin. I want to be extremely fit and immune till the cows come home. I don't know if this overwhelmed the system if I was asking too much out of it, but care of was very polite and didn't tell me I was being too ambitious. So you take the quiz uh, and they tell you what vitamins and supplements they recommend and then you don't have to go anywhere. The vitamins just come to your door. So if you would like to upgrade your health routine, here's how you're going to do it. you got to go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code CRIMINALBROADS and you will get 25% off. Again, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code CRIMINALBROADS. break came and went, and then it was January 1978, and Kathy was back in school. Saturday, January 14th, was a particularly good day for her. She had a wedding to go to that day at a little church nearby. The bride and groom were seniors, and the bride was a nursing student, one of Kathy's good friends. The reception was a festive potluck in someone's backyard. After the festivities, around 6 p.m., Kathy went back to Chi Omega. She'd had plans to go out with some of the other sorority sisters, but she was tired from the day and told them to go on without her. She went to her room, where Karen was sitting on her bed, busy with her work. Kathy changed into her pajamas and got into bed to study herself, propping herself up with pillows and snuggling under her beautiful new bedspread. Around 10.30, she and Karen started to get tired.
2: So we turned off our lights and got into our comfy beds to go to sleep. Our bedroom door was closed at this point. As I said, we lived on the second floor that faced the back parking lot. With our windows, our curtains open, we went to sleep, and I'm a light sleeper. Sometime in the morning, early, early, I remember hearing something. It was like a shush, and it was actually our bedroom door opening, and it was rubbing across the carpet and made that noise just enough to let me know I hear something so I'm laying there I'm on my left side and I kind of open my eyes and then close them again because I couldn't see anything the next thing I hear is a big a lot of noise right next to me whomever had come into the room tripped over that little trunk that we had between the beds because it couldn't be seen with the room dark and it was so low So that noise now really woke me up.
1: The serial killer Ted Bundy had pulled some daring stunts before arriving in Tallahassee, kidnapping two girls from the same place on the same day and killing them both, strolling back to one of his own crime scenes to retrieve evidence right underneath the noses of the cops. But no one knew who he was yet, at least not officially. He had already killed dozens of girls in Washington, Utah, and Colorado. He'd been arrested. He'd even been charged with murder. But he wasn't known across the country as capital T, capital B, Ted Bundy yet. Still, his legend was starting to grow. After a daring escape from the courthouse in Aspen, people made t-shirts and posters celebrating his audaciousness, and restaurants offered specials named after him, like the Bundy Burger, which was just a bun because the meat inside, the Ted Bundy, had fled. He was attractive, and he was anti-establishment, and no one had the slightest idea what he was capable of, and so they cheered him on, kind of. Go, Ted, go! And go he did, all the way to Florida, where he rented a room at a place called The Oaks and lay in wait until he couldn't take it anymore. On the night of January 14th, as Kathy and Karen finished studying and tucked themselves into bed, Bundy went to a bar called Sherrod's, where he stood on a staircase in dark clothes and stared at the girls there. Multiple girls that night noticed the bizarre look on his face— It was like a cold stare. It was strange, no expression on his face, said a girl named Connie Hastings, who later testified against him in court. A man matching Bundy's description was seen lurching around the neighborhood a bit for a while, sitting on a bench and mumbling inaudibly, asking two frat boys for directions to the Holiday Inn, and chasing a girl towards her dormitory. It wasn't until nearly 3 a.m. that he finally found what he was looking for— The unlocked back door of the Chi Omega sorority house, the combination lock was broken that night, and a pile of firewood sitting right next to it. Picking up an oak log, Bundy crept inside the sorority house and moved up the beautiful wooden staircase that Kathy had loved so much when she joined Chi Omega. At the top of the staircase, he paused on the landing. The second floor hallway was lined with lights around each door. He unscrewed several of the light bulbs. He passed the bathroom on the left and crept into the first room where Margaret Bowman was sleeping. He hit her on the forehead with the oak log, strangled her with a pair of pantyhose, and then pulled the covers up to her neck as though he were tucking her in. He crossed the hallway to the room where Lisa Levy was sleeping, where he beat her, raped her, and strangled her to death. He also sexually assaulted her with a hairspray bottle and bit her numerous times. He had been so careful for so long not to leave a scrap of evidence at his crime scenes, but the bite marks left by his distinctive teeth would be the first piece of physical evidence that tied him to his crimes. After killing Margaret and Lisa, he crossed the hall again, pushed open the door to the room where Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler lay sleeping, and tripped over the trunk that ran between their beds
2: and i see a silhouette a figure of someone standing next to me and as my eyes got used to open and i could see a little bit better in the dark this dark black figure had a knit cap on and long sleeves and i saw him lift his right arm up into the air and he had a club in his hand and as fast as it happened he slammed the log onto my face it was done with such force it shattered my jaw in three places and basically the jawbone was just hanging attached to the joint my face had a tear in it from from the my lips side of my lips up to my ear was just flapped open from the cut of the of the blow i had almost bit my tongue off and my teeth were just exposed because of the injuries i was laying there moaning and as he after he hit me it didn't hurt it wasn't like a sharp pain it felt like like more of a thud, like pressure, heavy pressure, which sounds odd, but that's that's what happened. That's what I could feel was that heavy pressure. Karen woke up and started making noise, so this person tripped back over that little trunk over to her side of the room and again hit her with the same piece of wood, the oak club, that he attacked me with. I was in my bed and I was making noises in my head. I was screaming as loud as I could help somebody help me. What's going on? I'm, you know, come get me. And reality, all I was doing was making gurgling sounds. Because I was moaning and groaning, he came back to my side of the bed to hit me again, to go ahead and kill me. Just as he walked over a light, shown up in our room I was in a I was laying on my left and I was cringed up into a little ball and I had my hands over my face and I was just just waiting for the next blow but when I laid there I saw this bright light come into our room it was just really it was a beautiful light it's hard to explain but it was white and um, clean it was a clean white light as i opened my eyes this guy this person who was being so frantic and just attacked me and then went and attacked karen and then went and it was like he was like a rabid animal he just it wasn't a slow process it was just really jerky and and um just on a mission he was just there to attack the light in the room spooked him he thought either he was seen by whomever was in the parking lot Or else that I saw him and I got a better look at him because of the light. The next thing I know is he's turned around and ran out of our bedroom. Then the light stopped shining. It was um, dark again in the room. And the beatings had stopped. And I, I did not see his face. I did not know that he had already attacked two of my sorority sisters and killed them, Margaret, Bowman and Lisa Levy Um, I was just now in a state of pain at that point Karen my roommate was able to get up and she walked out into the hallway where some sorority sisters found her and brought her turned her around and walked her back into our room turned on the light and that's what they saw when they saw the blood everywhere me covered in blood the room covered in blood And that's when they called 911.
1: To this day, Kathy remembers the intense relief of seeing that the police had arrived. The man who had attacked her in the night was gone. Help was here. Soon enough, paramedics were bending over her and taking her downstairs, down that gorgeous wooden staircase on a stretcher. She remembers feeling very cold and that there were flashing red and blue lights outside, the lights from police cars. In her confused state, Kathy thought that she was at a carnival.
0: I was taken
2: through the ER, and this whole time there was a police officer with me. Again, you know, the peace and comfort that gave me. They were, he, they were just right there as they pulled the gurney into the emergency room Um, as chaotic and everything was going on. They, you know, it was just a a chaotic scene. I was confused and scared and I looked up and I saw a face that I recognized and it was a friend of mine whom I known for church who had gotten married the day before on the 14th. She was the bride. She was studying to be a nurse and it was her night to be on duty i looked up at her and she looked down at me and she put her hand on my forehead and it just it just released i just released the tightness the angst um it was it was nice it was it was comforting and then they put me to sleep and in the operating room they wired my jaw shut Along with other, they tried to uh, stitch my uh, cheek back together. Because you can't do anything with a tongue, it was just forced to heal on its own. But that hospital experience was um, something I'll never forget. And yet the little things that brought me comfort, the police officer and my friend's face, it was between the chaos I felt comfort at some points.
1: After Kathy was released from the hospital and before she was flown back to Miami to recover at her parents' house, the cops wanted her to go back to the sorority and look at her room to see if anything was missing or different. Their thinking was that perhaps Bundy had taken something from her room, and when they caught him, if they ever caught him, maybe he'd have that same thing on his person. A
2: police officer was on each side of my elbows as we walked up that beautiful wooden staircase and we got to the landing, you made a right, and I remember seeing Margaret Bowman's room, which was the first door, and it had yellow crime scene tape on it. And then I looked, My I just turned my head and there was Lisa's room. The door was closed and there was yellow crime scene tape on it. The next door on the left was my room. Crime scene tape everywhere. So they walked me through And I looked at my dresser. It was covered in black fingerprint dust. I looked and I I was so just overwhelmed by the whole experience. I couldn't tell if anything was missing or or taken. I looked down. I looked down the wall and I saw my bed. And at this point, the blood was brown. It was just a, a brown stain. And it was all over My bedspread that I had just picked out, which made me so happy that was now ruined and covered in blood and my beautiful sheets. But at some point, it gave me reality because everything I was feeling and going through in those days, it happened because it happened there in that room and on that bed. I could understand what I was going through was real. And it was real because it happened on that bed. And those my bedspread was part of that testimony.
1: After seeing her room, two cops flew back with Kathy to her home where, in between trips to the oral surgeon, her parents and sister nursed her back to health. Though she was surrounded by family, she was desperate to hear from her Chi Omega sisters, but no one ever called her back. It wasn't until two years later when her friend Susie White passed away suddenly. Susie was a fellow Chi Omega and one of her old friends from high school theater. It wasn't until then that Kathy saw her sorority sisters again. At Susie's wake, they clustered around her, cooing sympathetically. She pushed them away. What happened, she said. Where'd y'all go? The girls looked nervous. The Chi Omega board of directors had explicitly told them not to contact her, they said. After the Bundy attacks, the number of Chi Omega pledges had dropped drastically and the board was nervous. They didn't want to be known as, quote, the Bundy house, the Bundy sorority, the Bundy people. And so they had to scrub their image and do their best to forget. Surely Kathy could understand this, right? They didn't want to forget her. They were told to forget her. But Kathy knew that wasn't the whole story. The sisters had wanted to forget her. She was a reminder of something terrifying, something that had happened in their midst, and it was easier to just look away or to pretend it had never happened at all. And so, as the girls closed in around her, she stepped back, breaking the circle. "'I don't need you,' she told them. "'I needed you in the beginning,' But I don't need you now. I'm here for Susie.
0: Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all.
1: The year after the attack was a blur of activity for Kathy, who decided to fling herself back into life and work and romance in an attempt to move on from the horror of January 15th. One month after the attack, Ted Bundy was caught, and though Kathy didn't recognize his name and hadn't actually seen his face, she felt sure that this was the guy. Three months after the attack, she found herself so tired of being afraid of strange men that she took a job at a lumberyard in order to be around the maximum number of strange men possible. Six months after the attack, she was marrying her college boyfriend. After the lumberyard job, she took a job as a bank teller and was almost immediately robbed at gunpoint by, you guessed it, a strange man. She took the afternoon off of work and then returned the next day. Years later, she found herself so afraid of hospitals, from her experience with lupus and her numerous jaw surgeries, that she couldn't go inside one even if she was visiting, say, a friend who just had a baby. She didn't want to live her life with this fear either, and so she forced herself to walk into a hospital's HR department and ask them for a job. She worked at a hospital and loved it for the next 18 years but her resilience was perhaps most on display in the spring of 1979 at Ted Bundy's trial.
2: They called me. It was my turn to sit on, uh, to go in and, and testify. And I walked through the back door, sat on the witness stand, and I'm getting comfortable. And you st- I started looking around the room, you know, just get the lay of the land. And there was Bundy sitting at the defense table, which was not a big uh courtroom and he seemed awfully close sitting at that table and then the prosecutor was on the other side of him at their table. Bundy was sitting there looking at me and I looked at him and I stared at him and he stared at me and we just locked eyes. I know the prosecutor asked me questions which I have no idea what they were or what I answered. I was just in a focus. And then Bundy kind of put his his hand to his chin the way he would sit and just stared, and I did the same. When the prosec- defense attorneys um, asked me a couple questions, I remember the last question they asked me was, is this the man you saw in your room that night and attacked you? All I wanted to do was say yes, and this whole time I'm still looking at him. I think in my head I'm going, you know, you're on that side of the table now. I'm on this side. You're laying in the bed, and I'm standing. So um, I had to say to that question that, no, I could not definitely say that was the person in my room. I couldn't see him clear enough. And that really, it really upset me because I wanted to. I wanted to help put him away. I wanted my testimony mean something. So I turned around, I got off the stand, I turned around and I walked back behind the courtroom and I about threw up. My stomach was so tense because all I did was stare him down. And, you know, when I got through, I was just like, whoa, my knees were weak. And, you know, it's just, I just, I don't know, I melted because it was over. And I put so much strength into myself to look at him.
1: On July 24th, Ted Bundy was found guilty. A week later, he was sentenced to death in the electric chair. By the mid-80s, Ted Bundy was still alive, making a wearisome series of appeals that drove Floridian taxpayers crazy. But Kathy had moved on. She'd had a son, despite being told years ago that she wouldn't be able to have kids because of her lupus. Her first marriage was over, and she was dating a handsome man from her high school theater troupe named Scott Rubin. On the night of January twenty-third, 1989, Kathy and Scott sat together in front of the TV watching what would turn out to be one of the major events of the decade finally the execution of Ted Bundy 11 years after he'd killed his last young woman
2: I remember my husband and I were um in my little condominium my son Michael was at my mama's house because we got a Phone call that this definitely was going to be the day of execution, that he was not going to be given any more stays. We got the notice. We got a phone call from the district attorney and said that you know he definitely had been killed, and we were watching TV, and I was now in a blur in my mind, and Scott said after that they showed on TV um, that he had been killed. I went in a place in my heart, and I cried, and I cried. And I thought of Margaret, and I thought of Lisa, and I cried for the other victims, those beautiful women that he took away from us. And I cried, and my husband said he just held me and let me let me cry. I don't know how long it was that I was there. Um, my husband says it was for a while, but I, I uh, composed to myself, I got it together, and I looked at him and I said, I'm hungry, let's go out to breakfast.
1: been wanting to tell her story for decades, but no journalists ever reached out to her. Even Anne Rule, the true crime writer who wrote about Kathy and all the other victims in The Stranger Beside Me, was in touch with Kathy but didn't actually interview her for the book. This wasn't malicious on the part of the journalists. Kathy was told later that people hadn't wanted to bother her or re-traumatize her. But all this time, she'd been wanting to talk about it. She finds that talking about these things is greatly healing for her. When a TV station finally reached out to interview her in 2018, Kathy decided that she was going to start telling the world who she is, what she's survived, and how she did it. Today, she's been on the Dr. Oz show, she's been interviewed by radio stations all over the world, she's spoken at CrimeCon, and she's currently working on her memoir. But most importantly, she is a living, breathing, fearless reminder that behind these stories that we read about, these stories that are so famous these days that they almost feel like fiction, Bundy, Manson, Gacy, Dahmer, behind these stories there were and are very real people.
2: I find it very healing for me to tell to tell this. It's almost like having an onion and you peel away the the little layers, and um, each time I do, I feel better. Whomever you are, I mean, whoever, however scared you are, everyone has a strength in them. And really, once you find that, there's no one can take that away from you. That's your strength.
1: Kathy and Scott live a happy life in New Orleans. They have adorable dogs and even more adorable grandchildren. Kathy is fascinated by the quote-unquote true crime boom, and she has a section of her library dedicated to books about serial killers, with plenty of them about Bundy himself. She is no longer afraid of him. Years ago, when the attack was still fresh in her mind, Kathy gave herself a little exercise in order to heal. She pictured the most peaceful place she could imagine, a little island with a palm tree on it. And as she moved through life, she pictured herself walking closer and closer to that island. Her progress was so slow. She seemed so far away at first. And she felt the presence of Ted Bundy right behind her the darkness the man appearing in her room in the night the arm lifting the oak log but as the years went on she got closer and closer to the island
2: and as the time went and I could walk and I finally got to my island I turned around and Bundy wasn't behind me anymore (laughs)
0: I came
1: my prayers for you to do the same. All right, my sweet, sweet listeners, that's the end of the story. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Kathy's life and everything she's overcome. Um, hey, if you want to stay in touch with Kathy, follow her on Twitter. She loves it. You can find her at twitter.com slash Kathy. That's Kathy with a Y. K. Rubin. R-U-B-I-N. That's her married name. All right. Go follow her. And hey, agents, any agents listening to this looking for an amazing memoir, get in touch with Kathy. She's working on hers. I would like to thank this week's patrons who make this episode possible and just I love them so much. I feel like they're so cool. And um, I want to say thank you to Carrie Weinstein, Melia Mosley, Jean-Emily DuBose, Floofle, the Mysterious and Melissa Ann Carlson. Um, as always, if I mispronounce your name, I'm so sorry, but uh, don't let it take away from how much I love and respect and I'm grateful for you. And now, last but certainly not least, a little turn back into seriousness. Um, I'm going to play you a clip of something Kathy said about Ted Bundy's story and how we should be looking at it. And then I am going to play you a special couple of clips from some Criminal Broads listeners themselves, who are reading aloud the names of Ted Bundy's victims. Kathy, as you know, other people in the true crime sphere are emphasizing, wants us to remember that behind these killers, whether they're male or female, there are real people, real victims, um, and it's important to never, never forget that. So here's Kathy.
2: They talk about a serial killer. That's what he was. But you don't make a serial killer unless you have victims, multiple victims. And that's what needs to be remembered. Um, the facade of what he looked like and what he did is usually what what's mem- remembered. But the victims are what made him that. And um, there's never enough about the victims. Um, their names, there have been several documentaries that have been very well um, I have been appreciative of how they've um, noticed the victims and talked about them. But again, I'm afraid that people will see this story and see half of it.
0: Karen Sparks, 18. She lived. Linda Ann Healy, 21. Donna Gail Manson, 19. Susanna Lane Rancourt, 18. Roberta Kathy Parks, 20. Brenda Carol Ball, 22. Georgine Hawkins, 18. Janice Ann Ott, 23. Denise Nasland, 19. Nancy Wilcox, 16. Melissa Smith, 17. Laura Ann Aim, 17. Carol Duranch, 18. She lived. Deborah Jean Kent, 17. Karen Eileen Campbell, 23. Julie Cunningham, 26. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 24. Lynette Don Culver, 12. Susan Curtis, 15. Margaret Bowman, 21. Lisa Levy, age 20. Kathy Kleiner, age 20. She lived. Karen Chandler, age 21. She lived. Cheryl Thomas, age 21. She lived. Kimberly Leach, age 12.
1: And Bundy is a suspect in many other cold cases. His exact victim count will probably never be known for sure. Thank you um, to the listeners who read out those names you did it beautifully and made me very emotional and thank you to all of you for listening supporting the podcast rating and reviewing being a patron it's very much appreciated and I feel very close to you and uh, just happy to have such cool sensitive people listening to this okay I'll let you go until next time have a wonderful two weeks and can't wait to talk next goodbye
0: Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong Loving you, dear, like I do If it's a crime, then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you Seeking the truth never gets old.